Welcome to episode 176 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. In this episode, we'll talk about what we've been up to this week, including our observations of Comet A1 Leonard, as well as one final opportunity to get your name in the draw for the free 2022 RASC Observers Calendar. So, Shane, you have a, a, a thank you to send out first, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into any of the observing stuff, uh, big thanks to Paul. Uh, he is a new Patreon supporter of the podcast. And uh, as always, we thank all of our Patreon supporters. It really does help. And uh, yeah, just thanks. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. We do really appreciate uh, your contribution and any of the other contributions people have made uh, currently or, or in the past, because... Uh, well, uh, if we if we don't get Patreon support, then it you know we, we're happy to pay for it out of our own pocket. But this kind of helps to uh, to help guide our decisions. Like we're making some decisions in how we're going to move forward with the uh, with the podcast. You know, we're just making we we're just making some plans to do some testing over Christmas, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we're trying to create some some better experiences um, for our for our listeners. So uh, you know, looking forward to it. So, how was your week, Shane? Not too bad. Um, you know, our weather here, Chris, has just been so like, I, I, I won't like the, the, the forecasts have been so inaccurate. <laughs> you know, last week when we recorded, uh, one of my comments was, well, Chris, I know it's been bad, but the forecast this week looks really good. And I think I've said that like the last two or three mm-hmm. Sundays in a row. And then like the Monday forecast comes out and it's now partly cloudy every day. And then the Tuesday forecast comes Did out and now it's a hundred percent cloudy every day and snow. <laughs> and so did you see the forecast this morning? Cla- or, it's yeah, supposed to be starting Monday. Cle- clear, clear and sunny, clear and sunny for a whole week. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and, and right now they say you can't predict the future, but. I predict we will not be observing tonight because we are having a blizzard. <laughs> well, well, the snow is supposed to taper off by lunch, they're saying, and then it, it's going to get extremely cold. Well, compared to the current temperatures, I think it's like minus, I think the high is minus seven today and it's getting down to 25 tonight. So it'll be a chilly evening. That's for sure. That's minus 25 Celsius yes. people yeah, just, yeah. you know, in, in Saskatchewan. One of the first things that you learn in the winter, and Shane's laughing because he knows what I'm going to say, <laughs> is that they talk about the temperature without the negative symbol. And so I'm lying in bed listening to the forecast, and they're saying, you know, and it's like minus 20 or minus 25, and they're saying it's going to be seven on Saturday. So in my mind, I'm like walking around in a sweater or just a like jacket. I'm just about skipping through the daisies. And then Saturday rolls around, and it's like, minus 10. I'm like, but they said it was going to be seven. And then I started listening and I realized they just dropped that negative symbol because it's just implicit that it will be below zero. (laughs) Well, it gets to that point in the year here where all of the temperatures are negative. So you might as well just not say that because it's extra words, extra syllables, but only call out the ones that are now on the positive side or are above freezing, which is, you know, going to be rare. So, <laughs> so yeah, that right. That and nobody happens. tells you this. No, no. You just kind of learn it the hard way. <laughs> you learn it the hard way. You have many disappointing days of, but they said, they said it was going to be warm, yeah. but see, and the other thing is they will call it like warm because minus seven in January, 
is considered warm here and or yeah. they'll call it even balmy like and they're they're not joking like i'll say it and i'm totally kidding i call it bikini weather or whatever but but people here are they're serious oh no it's warm it's warm. like this is not warm you're still making ice cubes outside right you you know no one's no one's heading to the beach here folks it's just a it's it's a slightly nicer day out ice fishing you know yeah yeah anyway it's all relative i could go on yeah, yeah. all relative yeah so so did i did get some good yes yes i did um so friday night um i went out in just in the backyard um it was the only clear night of the week and i thought there's no way i am staying indoors i am getting my telescope out and uh so i took out the the old tasco 76 millimeter uh like f16 or whatever it is f15.7 i think um and trying to think what eyepiece i was using my 24 millimeter panoptic and um it was really, really bad seeing conditions that night. Like even at, oh, really? yeah, even at that low power, um, it was really like, I really, especially bright stars. I was not getting them as like pinpoints of light. They were just dancing. Um, at first I thought it yeah. was just the telescope had to uh, cool down. So I gave it about a half an hour. It improved slightly. So some of it was, you know, the, just the cooling of the scope, but um, it was so bad up there. There was a pretty strong wind out of the West. I was completely sheltered by the house, but anytime there's a wind out there, that usually means your seeing is not going to be very good. And, and it certainly held true that night. So really I, yep. I didn't have a very long session. So I, I played around a little bit in Perseus. Uh, I did have a quick look at Jupiter really was not able to see much detail in Jupiter other than just sort of faintly making out the two equatorial bands. And of course, uh, some of the Galilean moons. Um, but that was mm -hmm. kind of it with the telescope. So then uh, what I did is I took out my, uh, it, was, it was a night of retro gear. Uh, I took out my Bushnell Rangemaster seven by 35s and just <laughs> sat in the chair and you know, the, that oh, type cool. of seeing, excuse me, using a telescope is just, in my opinion, frustrating because it just amplifies the poor seeing, but you can get away then with a binocular session and, and have that be quite enjoyable. And those are very wide field binoculars. They're 11 degrees. And again, I was panning through that Eastern sky, um, through Taurus and, and Perseus and eh, quite enjoyed it actually. Cool. Um, then Saturday morning, I woke up at about... I don't know, five, five 30 with the dog. And I was going to take a telescope out, but, um, and I think you're probably going to talk more about this. Um, there was like, like I could see some of the brighter stars, but it was apparent that we had some high altitude cloud. Uh, so I just didn't bother. Um, I felt, I felt like it would yeah. probably not be too fruitful. So, um, no attempts yet for me at, uh, at a one Leonard. How about you, Chris? Yeah. Did you get out and see anything? Yeah, um, I get out a few times. I saw something a couple times. <laughs> so um, my AZ GTI mount uh, came back. That's kind of like the big news on my gear this week. Mm -hmm. And so it uh, th this is a, uh, a mount that you can stick on just any kind of photographic or, or um, whatever kind of tripod you have that will take a, take a photographic, um, let's see, screw head or whatever. Anyway. So, um, during the summer, actually, I think it was like the Labor Day long weekend, you and I were observing together, Shane, and I'd been using this mount for one year and one day and the azimuth 
axis bound. And we took a look at it and it was, it was beyond our level to comprehend and fix. It was going to be a major, a major fix and possibly something we couldn't fix. So we, we put it back together and I sent it off to Skywatcher um, down in the States. They, uh, they sent me um, a, and, and, you know, they don't know that I'm reporting back on this on the podcast either. I should mention that they're not like a sponsor or anything. Um, and uh, they sent me a, tracking number, um, no cost. I shipped it back to them. Uh, they said it will be, uh, four to five weeks before they worked on it. Um, five weeks later, I sent them an email. They sent me a tracking number. It was on its way back. And then, uh, yeah, it took about a week or so to get back here. And so I, uh, put it on a tripod as soon as it came in and fixed no problem. It actually works. It actually works much better now. So I always thought it was pretty good with a few little wonky bugs. And I've kind of reported on that. And I think that, uh, well, what they did is they upgraded it to the latest firmware and they fixed the binding that was in the azimuth axis. And I think they kind of greased and oiled it properly because when it tracks now, it is um, like you used to be able to hear it. And when you when you would slew it, it would make um, quite a bit of sound. And now it's very, very, very quiet. Like even when you slew it, it makes some sound like you can definitely hear it. But uh, I think that those bound gears were were always bound, and I think that they uh, they did an awesome job of kind of fixing it up for me. And uh, you know, again, they covered it under under warranty, and they were really fast at replying to any of my emails. And uh, so, yeah, I was I was really impressed with Skywatch. I'd, I've I've always liked a lot of their gear before, but I never really had actually had never really had any problems with any of the Skywatcher gear that I've bought. I've had Skywatcher mounts and telescopes and look through lots. So this is the first time I had to kind of contact and say, Hey, look, I, I have a problem. And they, they took care of it. I was super impressed. I couldn't recommend uh, Skywatcher and their customer service and their, uh, and their actual physical service on, on the products enough. So I just want to put that in. That's awesome. So is your phone able to connect to it again? Because I think you lost that ability uh, as well with the, the, I don't know, I guess, first version of this thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did. I actually had fixed that prior, but oh, okay. I, I literally had, I fixed that problem and ran into this other problem almost immediately. So it kind of mm-hmm. may have got meshed together, but, uh, but yeah, I had, I had fixed that. I forget what I did to fix it, but I had, had fixed that connectivity um, issue, but, uh, and, and it could have even been related because with, with those gears binding like that, um, well, that, that was, that was causing several issues. I'll put it that way. You know, it turned, it turned out and they kind of ran through them when they were back. I'm like, yeah, I was experiencing these other things too. And so anyway, they, they actually went above and beyond and really went through it in a very thorough um, and detailed manner. They really did like an analysis of it and, uh, and, and made sure when it came back, it was like perfect. And honestly, it's really, really nice. So now, um, you know, I put it on Jupiter and, I didn't even have it remotely leveled. I'm on my driveway. My driveway, as you know, Sheen has an angle. I had a tripod on that. I just kind of uh, level it good enough that the telescope's not too out of balance. And I pointed at Jupiter and set it to track 143 power and uh, no problem. Like it stayed right almost dead center field of view at 143 power for half an hour. So I'm going to call that a success because wow, yeah. honestly, I probably wouldn't track things much longer than, and I'm going to say this after half an hour, it wasn't moving appreciably out of the very center. I'm going to say it was dead center for at least half an hour. And then maybe was moving off just a little, and this was no alignment, no leveling, nothing. I just pointed on Jupiter and said, track it. That was it. 
So I did hmm. absolutely nothing. So I, you know, I, that, that mount is really working quite well before when I used to do that after half an hour, it would probably, the planet would probably be on the edge of the field of view, but honestly, you know, I was, I was satisfied with that level of performance. If I leveled it and took some care in the alignment, then yeah, I could get, get it pretty centered for half an hour. So I'd be really curious to see um, once we get some better nights, what happens when I actually take it and, and center it properly and, and go through a proper alignment uh, procedure. But right now, as is, um, I think that's pretty awesome. So you, you take the mount out, you throw it on a tripod, just like you do with a regular Altaz mount, you put your telescope on it, you can point at an object and say track as long as you've you know, you know, the object that you're pointing out, which, which like people like you and I um, are going to know what we're, we're pointed at, and then it's going to track that perfectly. And honestly, I'm, I'm good at that point. I'm, I'm as happy as, as I could ever be. That's working beyond the expectations I ever had for, for a little tracking mount like this. So very, very, yeah. very impressed. Go ahead. Yeah. That's exactly, you know, what I would want in an AZ mount uh, that tracks, you know, just, I don't want to have to go through the alignment procedures to be perfectly honest. Cause that's just, I don't know. I hate that stuff. It's a pain. Um, but if I could just point it at something manually and then say, okay, keep that in the field of view, that's what I'm looking for. Right. And we're not doing, cause you, you and I aren't, well, you do a little bit of astrophotography, but, but I'm not an astrophotographer at all. And this mount, I mean, although people have used it for astrophotography, I've seen this online. So that's how I know that I've never tried it and probably never will. Um, you know, for just visual only, like this, this is how you need it to work. And uh, so it, it's a really impressive uh, mount in, in that respect. And, and I think the price is pretty decent too on it. I think it's better if you buy it in a kit with another telescope and either gift the telescope to somebody else, like that's what I did, or um, maybe you need that telescope for yourself or, or sell it off and then recapture, um, you know, some of, some of the difference. I think that's the best way to get it. And that's, that's what I did. If you just buy the mount alone, it, it's a little bit pricey, but I, I actually think it's worth it. The thing thing works. It's very light. It does what it says it's going to do. You just have to be careful because there are two versions of this mount. And I screwed this up. There's the AZGTE and there's the AZGTI. And the E, for some reason, they put out the exact same mount. It looks exactly the same, but it doesn't have this feature. You have to guide it to the object and then say to track it. And to me, that is um, like a feature reduction. So the difference in price on them is like $20 or something like that, I think. It is a bizarre thing that they have two versions and they're like so closely priced. (laughs) It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the versions that they couple with the telescope, this, this is this is what messed me up. I decided I, I wanted the AZGTE. I knew about this difference. And then I was looking at all these telescopes that packages that you can get. Now, for some reason, the ones that you can manually guide and point um, are the higher power telescopes and the ones that you have to, you know, sort of um, use the paddle, hand paddle or or the app to guide it. And, and you can't just push it around the sky are the wide field ones. And to me, to me as an observer, that seems like it's, it's gotten reversed somewhere along the way because the, the high power telescopes are going to be the ones like the Max Sudovs that they package with it, I think are mm-hmm. going to be the ones that people want to uh, pretty much just use go to with maybe you're in a bright city or something like that. To me, then maybe the, the GTE might make some sense, but uh 
but, but it would be the low power 80 millimeter F5 acros that you would, yeah, I'll just scan around the sky and then maybe track on Jupiter a little bit. And it doesn't have to be as accurate. Th- those ones I think um, would work better on the GTI. So anyway, that's where I get confused and end up with the GTE at first, but it was cool because I was able to test it out and, uh, and realize this difference. So I can explain it to other people. And then um, when I got the GTI to actually see the difference uh, in the performance was, was pretty astounding for, for an extra 20 bucks. But yeah, anyway, that's just my a little bit of a review, uh, a re-review of the mount. And I was able to test out my Pentax five millimeter on Jupiter that whole time. So that was cool. And how was the, uh, the new eyepiece? The, the coatings on the new eyepiece are much better than the old coatings. I got to say that. Really? Yeah, they're, it's definitely a step up. They're slightly newer. Now, some of my my Pentax XWs are like 20 years old or so or getting onto it. Um, but the new coatings are, they, they are definitely better coatings. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a well, they're, they're well-regarded eyepieces for good reason. I think like we went into this in great detail last week. We won't do it again today, but yeah. um, one of the few eyepieces that has come down in price and uh, has gone up in quality, I, I think, uh, with, with all the changes, like the, the bodies. So we, we actually talked briefly about the um, screw-up eyecaps. Remember I said that none of my eyecaps really screw up very well? Well, um, this one, I tested it out just because, and it's a little bit smoother than the other ones were. Much, much smoother, actually. So <laughs> this IP seems to work a little better. And just in comparison, the coatings, even though the coatings are truly excellent in the other XWs, I think the ones in uh, in in the five millimeter anyway, which is a new one by Rico or Rico, um, are are really the best coatings I've ever seen on an eyepiece. They are really that good. Wow. Yeah. Very nice. Cool. Very nice. So I won't get into that. So let's see. Well, I did. I did get some observing in. I was setting my alarm and I was waking up and I was going out and I was looking at clouds <laughs> in the morning to yep. try to catch the comet. So the comet right now, Comet A1 Leonard is, um, well, it's been coming down through um, uh, Coma Berenices, just uh, sort of uh, to the right or to the south, uh, the, the east and to the southeast of um, the handle of the Big Dipper. And it's, it's coming along and it's going to cut um, just above or just to the uh, north of Arcturus. And then it's going to get to the horizon and then it's going to come up into the evening sky um, very quickly, like pretty much the like right at the same time. Um, so I was getting up and I was, I was going out from my back deck. I can look up and I can see the area of sky it's going to be in. And one morning I could just, I could see the stars, like the, I could see the handle of the big dipper I could probably see like third magnitude stars, but there was a lot of high cloud and I panned around with my binoculars. There was no chance I was going to see it. And uh, I was kind of disappointed. The other couple mornings I looked out were complete overcast. And then uh, Friday was rolling around and I could see Friday evening was going to be really good. And there was a chance it was going to be clear in the morning. And I was like, oh, this is like a really bad decision. I just got my mount back get it working, get this new eyepiece. I really wanted to go out and look at the planets, but I decided that I would kind of sacrifice the Friday evening for like, for, for a worse sky in the morning and, and maybe not even getting any observing in because there was a chance it was just going to cloud. Well, it was going to cloud back up, but whether or not it would cloud up before I saw the comet or not. So what I did is on Friday night, 
I packed up all my um, gear and I put it by the back door. Um, and then what I did is set my alarm and went to bed early and got up at five. And so uh, I was I was at my observing site, which is about a dozen or so kilometers away, less than a 15 minute drive. And it's on, on a really good night. It's it's not quite magnitude six, but it's close. It's like five, eight, five, nine. And there's no lights in the immediate vicinity. So you can get dark adapted. And uh, so I set up out there, took my binoculars out, could not see it in the binoculars. And then I, uh, I had taken out my ST80, which I haven't really used that much, but I wanted to see how the doctor worked in it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how the Massiema worked in it and uh, see if I could find the comet. So uh, I put the uh, Massiema in there and I pretty quickly um, snatched up the comet. Um, it, was, it was pretty bright. We had some high haze. Mm-hmm. And there was some cloud floating around and actually you could see like a pretty big band of high cirrus, um, right where the comet was. But even through that, I could actually see the comet, uh, in the Gee. 80 millimeter scope. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was cold. It was minus 12 Celsius. Mm-hmm. So, was- so were, were you able to see nucleus tail? Like what, uh, what were some of the features you were able to pull in? Yeah. So I found it in the 32 and kind of. Then, you know, went up to see M- M3. I could see Messier 3, which is a globular cluster that had just passed like the day before. I was really disappointed to have missed that, but I'd gotten up, but there was no opportunity to see it um, because of the cloud. But uh, yeah, so I, I went back to the comet and uh, I could kind of detect a bit of a tail and I wanted to see see what I could see as far as structure is concerned. So I put the 12 and a half doctor in. So that that took me from, I think, like around 12 or 13 power to about uh, 32 or 33 power and uh at, at 32 power i could see uh, i could see a little bit of a coma and a little bit of a tail so it seemed like from time to time i would get almost like a like a bright spot in the middle and definitely i could see like uh almost like a triangular shape so it was you know the comet and then the tail was was pretty wide and blunt is what it looked like to me um, visually anyway, which is not um, how it seems to look, uh, you know, in the, in the astro images anyway, it seems like the comet is, is a little bit longer, but I think what I was seeing there, like if you, if you look at any photos online, there's, there's kind of like a brighter um, bit very in close to the comet. And if you kind of, you know, sort of look at that really, really bright part, you'll see it kind of looks more like a triangle. Then there's like a really faint spot, a uh, really faint uh, tail coming off of that. So I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's what's getting picked up in the astro images. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit different visually than it is through the, uh, through the telescope. But uh, yeah, I was pretty happy uh, to be able to be able to see it. Um, and there's very little snow in the fields. So um, I went out now, now there will be snow in the fields. We've gotten about an inch or two of snow already. Um, but hopefully um, it's not enough to impede my, my access to the site that I like to use because uh, nobody goes down these roads that I, that I go on and they're not really, they're, well, they're not maintained in the winter, I don't think. Um, but it, it should still remain uh, good enough to, uh, to get out there. So, yeah, but I'm sure Shane, that if, uh, if the clouds weren't kicking around, I'm pretty sure you'd probably have been able to get it in your binoculars, although you're looking back towards the city in that direction. But uh, from from a dark site, definitely it would be really, really easy in any binocular 
and uh, from uh, from a super dark site. I don't know. I, I would think, uh, you know, it seemed like it, it was on the verge of maybe it would be naked eye from, you know, from a, from magnitude seven dark sky site. If you're able to get to one, I think uh, I think somebody probably would be able to to pick it out. Well, did you see that sketch from Eric that I sent you a link to this morning? Oh, no, I didn't see that yet. So, so Eric uh, is from Calgary and, and he's, a, he's a listener of the podcast. He didn't send this directly to us, but uh, Larry McNish uh, tweeted it out. Um, so Eric uh, drove, the caption is, Eric drove a long way to find an unclouded sky, braved freezing temperatures and set up a large telescope in the dark. Uh, so that he could sit and sketch Comet Leonard near Globular Cluster M3. Here's his wonderful result. Oh, cool. So check out our Twitter. I didn't get that from you. You didn't get it? No. Oh, I'll send it it here. Um, Anyway, uh, it's incredible. And uh, if anybody's interested, just check out our Twitter feed and, and you'll see the retweet there. But I'm not sure what telescope he was using. Um, you know, I'm not sure how large it was, but this sketch is quite incredible. Um, and, and I can only imagine the view. I'm definitely living vicariously through, uh, Eric's eyes here, uh, to see M3 in the comet like that. It's just beautiful. So just sent it to you, Chris. Yeah. That pops up. Yeah. I'm just looking at the, uh, the sketch on here now. Yeah. So he, he was able to kind of get more of that wispy wispiness of the tail, so that must have been a few nights ago, maybe that he he went out to uh, to do that. Yeah, very 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 cool sketch. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. Almost looks photographic. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, it's very like he even has strange. some color or a little bit in the stars in M3. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's excellent. I think for some reason is his telescope. It's like it's it's at least 16 inches. I'm going to say or bigger. Um, maybe okay. it's 18 inches even, but I, I think it's at least like a 16 inch. So, um, but yeah, that's like a, that's a neat sketch because i um, guessing that's his lowest power or, or it's a combination of, of sketches. Very nice. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. So before we, uh, before I go down too much of a rabbit hole there um, on the cold, we're going to do an episode on cold weather observing next, but next weekend, Shane, if it is clear, if the weather forecast holds for a change, eventually they'll get it right. Maybe. Um, <laughs> we'll have, I think we're going to have a unique opportunity with Comet A1 Leonard because of where it's situated in the sky and where we're situated in relation to the sun. Because according to my astronomy software, we'll be able to see it equally high in the morning sky and then about equally high in the evening sky for, I think, a few, maybe three or four mornings. And evenings. So it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a rare opportunity for those of us living, I think probably around maybe who knows, like 45 to 55 degrees latitude, um, or something like that. I I haven't run all the analysis, but at least for us at 50, it it looks like it's going to be, I don't know, like seven or eight degrees high and possibly fourth magnitude or brighter. And then, uh, that's going to be in the morning. And then in the evening, it's going to be about the same because it's, it's close to the sun, but I guess where it's positioned, um, you know, uh, kind of like above the sun or whatever, then we're going to have this sort of unique opportunity because the sun is so low here where we are anyway. Probably if you went um, too farther north, it's going to be below the horizon because of where it is in Ophiuchus. And then if you go too far south, of course, um, probably that angle is is going to be enough that you're uh, 
you're going to have the sun still in the sky because it's not going to be dark all the time like it is here. Pretty much that's what we're facing is that we've uh, we've gotten whittled down to only seven or eight hours of sunshine a day here. So we're uh, we're just able to kind of have have that dark sky opportunity um, both in the mornings and in the evenings right now. So that that's something I'm calling to people's attention if you live um, in areas. Just run your software and see. Yeah, I'm really excited for it. And I imagine once it becomes an evening object, we'll probably see a flurry of, of observations. It's just, you know, more people are up around sunset than sunrise. And, uh, you know, hopefully the conditions allow us to get a lot of observing in of this comet because it is, it is starting to look like it's meeting uh, expectations of becoming a real bright uh, object. Yeah, I would have put it at about five, eight, five, nine. So it's about half a magnitude brighter than what my software was estimating. But I thought my software was overly optimistic before. But uh, yeah, I would have put it uh, at sixth magnitude at the absolute faintest. And I think it was a little brighter wow. than that. Like I said, I had those clouds, so it was really hard to get a fix. I really wish those clouds hadn't been there because I think like if it was about that, like it would have been on the edge of visibility for me, uh, naked eye and you know, where, where I am, I can simply say, hmm, it's close. I can throw everything back in the car and drive another 20 minutes and drop another Bortle scale and a half. So it's sort of like a weird situation. I just kind of keep driving in south from, from where I live. And uh, if I drive for three hours, I'm in a completely dark sky, but it, it just gets kind of ridiculous after a while. But I can sort of, if something's on the edge of visibility, I can just say, all right, I'll just hop back in the car and go for another half an hour. And, uh, and, and get into uh, a sky that's that much uh, darker. So I, I think I might've done that uh, even at five o'clock in the morning, but mm-hmm, anyway. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm yeah. excited for it. Yeah. Watch out for the animals. I almost hit a rabbit on the way home on the highway. So, <laughs> well, it's part of the, part of the challenge, I guess. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have some listener um, emails about the comet chain. We've, uh, we've got one here. From uh, Charles, uh, did you want to uh, take a read? Yeah, yeah. So um, Charles said, I've been following a series trundle across the Hyades every clear or mostly clear night for the past couple of months. Uh, there were two wonderful conjunctions early on. Uh, the first one was when it moved to less than one degree from M1. Uh, the second was with Aldebaran. Uh, it's been fun following its journey with scopes and binoculars. Uh, early this morning, I observed Comet Leonard uh, for an hour with my 120 millimeter refractor. Uh, the comet is bright and it shows a nice bright nucleus and a narrow fan-shaped coma. Yeah, that's yeah, that's kind of what I was seeing. Okay, okay. Um, kind of a wedge. Uh, yeah, I said triangle, but probably fan-shaped is a probably better description. Okay. Um, carrying on with Charles email, uh, he says it was much brighter than I expected it to be, uh, between, uh, 6.5 and 6.8 was the estimation. Um, he said, I could glimpse it in binoculars as a tiny fuzzball until, uh, the present moon rose high enough to ruin the contrast. Uh, even then it was still visible in the refractor's 50 millimeter finder scope. Uh, M3 is about six degrees east of the comet and made a nice comparison object. The comet was considerably larger than M3 and nearly the same brightness. Uh, On Friday morning, Leonard will cross within 10 arc minutes of M3. That will be an amazing sight. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's what uh, Eric sketched. So that must have been uh, Friday morning for him. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I'm curious to to see. Maybe Eric will will reach out and get in touch. And uh, yeah, so so Charles was observing. I think this may have been like last weekend or, or early early in in last week, um, and he was sort of looking forward to that. But it had made uh, a few different observations there. So yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And it was also cool that uh, that we heard from Charles, and we heard from a lot of people about their uh, series observations series being a minor planet um, between Mars and uh, and Jupiter. And I was just, I was kind of interested when we, when we made that episode on minor planets, which is something I'm interested in doing a little bit more observing uh, on. I've, I've observed them in the past. Um, I was quite surprised to hear from so many listeners. I don't know how many, we received a lot of emails about people um, not just making the observations because we had done, done it in a podcast, but uh, oh yeah, I've been observing that for months now, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really surprised. I was too, um, and, and maybe it's just a bias that I have because I've never really uh, spent a lot of time observing, uh, you know, the asteroids before, so or, or some of these minor planets. Um, so maybe that's why I, I just assume that maybe you know people don't observe them that much. But wow, yeah, we got quite a flood of them. Yeah, so definitely something uh, something about education there, I think, uh, for us, and just like the different things that that a lot of people observe that just, you know, um, lots of us just haven't observed as much, you know, certainly we've observed them some, but, uh, but there's, there's people out there, um, you know, like Charles who, who will watch them when they, uh, get close to other deep sky objects and watch them move across. And, uh, that's, that's really amazing. Very, very cool. So we have, uh, another uh, listener email from, from Paul. Do you want me to go ahead with this one? Yeah, for sure. All right. So, um, Paul wrote to us on December 1st uh, about his comment Leonard observations. He said, uh, hey, Chris and Shane, really enjoyed your podcast episode on Comet Leonard. Thank you so much, Paul. I've been tracking Leonard since the 13th of November in a 70 millimeter scope and in his 10 by 42 image stabilized binoculars. Those are pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. So that that's a neat combination. In the 70 millimeter scope at 20 power, 20x, it has a very distinct coma and almost stellar nucleus. On the 30th of November, I could start to see a tail in the binoculars. Looking forward to see the comet brighten in December. And then he wanted to be entered in the calendar draw, which we have done. So, yeah, that's really cool that he's uh, been following it along since, uh, you know, the 13th um, of, uh, of November. So he'll he'll get a good month of observing on that comet. That's uh that, that can be a rare experience. So really good, uh, really good observations there from, from Paul. Thank you so much for sending those in. So the next one we have is, uh, is Neil sent us one just on December 2nd. I think I just squeezed, squeezed this in when I was making up the notes. Uh, do you want to take a read of this one, Shane? Yeah. So the subject is Comet C2021A1 Leonard. Uh, had a shot at the comet this morning, Thursday, December 2nd. Uh, I'm not an early bird and my plans for a 5 a.m. start were closer to 6 a.m. Still, the skies were only just starting to brighten, so it wasn't too bad. I'm in, I'm in Edinburgh, so that's 55.95 degrees north, and my skies are a good bordle six here. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so first, with 10 by 50 binoculars, easy to find M3 just by scanning up from Arcturus, and the comet was about two degrees north-northwest from there both easily fitting in the same field of view. Uh, what's cool about that, Chris, a little bit of a sidebar. Uh, somebody uh, sent us a, a, a Twitter message asking if 10 by 50s would be sufficient. 
Um, oh, yeah. I said for sure, uh, especially if you have a dark sky and this just affirms that. Yep. Um, so back to the email. Uh, so with those 10 by fifties, uh, he said, I could make out the elongated shape of the tail very faintly, uh, with just a slight brightening of the coma, uh, then out with the ST 80, which is, I, I guess the similar telescope to what you were using, Chris, yep. which is pretty cool or yep. same telescope really. Yeah. Um, so ST 80 using a 30 millimeter plossal for a relatively wide field. Uh, the coma was visible with direct vision and the tail about one degrees worth, uh, visible with averted vision. Uh, the sky was getting lighter by now. And I guess that if I had, or I guess that if had, I got my arse into gear an hour earlier, the view would have been better, but still a comet tail is always a win. Yeah. Uh, back then to the binos, but by now the comet, uh, was getting quite hard to see. Um, and then, uh, and then a follow-up observation, uh, from Neil. So this is the second one. Uh, I think maybe the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So another go with the 10 by 50 binos this morning, uh, the sky was pretty clear, uh, could see M81 and 82, uh, and just about make out M51, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at 6am, the comet was less than a half a degree Southeast of M3, uh, obviously brighter than yesterday, but not quite as bright as the globular cluster, uh, possibly a hint of the coma in the binoculars, uh, its tail passed right through M3. Uh, so made it hard to distinguish looking forward to seeing the images today. Uh, and that's it. So some great observations there by Neil. Um, what I'm kind of liking about these last couple of observations too, is just the back and forth between the binoculars and the telescope. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, I think that, uh, you know, comet observing with binoculars, uh, is, is a, you know, a great way to do it. Um, because often, you'll get, you know, a wider field of view. And sometimes the comet, you know, especially when you have something like M3 uh, in, in the near field can really, I don't know, frame it quite nicely. Yeah. And, uh, and, and especially when you're scanning the sky, just to even locate where, where yeah. it might be, the binoculars are really, really helpful for that. Yeah. That's how, that's how I start with, with these uh, every time, even if, even if maybe they're, they're a bit on the faint side is, um, use the binoculars. Um, sometimes as we have comments like this, they're brightening up. I think it's brightening up pretty, pretty quick. And so, um, by using binoculars, you might be able to score it in the binoculars right away and then kind of go back and forth a as well. Sometimes when you have the lower power of the binocular, you can pick up the tail or different tails a little bit easier and gives you a different frame. Like you were saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely, uh, the way to go. Yeah. Agreed. And also, yeah, it was cool that he was using um, the little ST80, uh, which is the 80 millimeter F5. Uh, same scope I had out the other morning, these, these telescopes, although I think they're a little bit more now because of the, uh, uh, all the challenges with uh, shipping and logistics and supply and everything that we're all going through. Um, but like I picked mine up. It's not a, a real ST80. It's a knockoff um, or, or other branded, I should say. It's not a knockoff. Um, but I think I, I was able to pick mine up for $115 or something like that. So these are pretty inexpensive telescopes and they're perfect for looking at comets because they have a very wide field of view, the refractors. So they gather a decent amount of light and the stars are um, pretty sharp through them. They have, they have some pretty decent low power, um, you know, uh, capabilities there. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. Um, yeah. So anything else to, to add before we uh, begin to, to wrap up this episode, Gene? No, that's everything, Chris. The, the only thing I want to add is that, 
sort of looking forward to next weekend as, as we get into um, this week and early next week, that, that's when the binoculars are even going to become more handy because this comet is going to hug the horizon um, being visible uh, an hour or two only after or before sunset. So when it's close to the horizon like that, binoculars will work best. And uh, as well, they're a little bit easier to look through and it's easier to kind of scan along the horizon with them. And, you know, uh, binoculars like eight by 40 or a 10 by 50 um, or even larger, if you have a tripod are, are going to really get a, get a good workout here. I kind of wish I had a pair of slightly higher power um, binoculars, uh, but uh, you know, I'll just use my, uh, my seven by 35s and a small telescope, I think is, is going to hopefully make for some, some good views, but yeah. Coming up um, next weekend, I think that for those of us that are, you know, you know, like Neil and, and us living kind of in and around sort of that maybe 45 to 55 degree area, uh, at least, because that's that's the only areas that I've checked, I think that we'll potentially get an opportunity to uh, to see this comet in the morning and the evening sky if it does brighten up enough. If it doesn't, then yeah, it won't be visible, but it does um, create the right geometry to be visible both in the morning and the evening sky on, uh, on at least a few days, I think maybe starting as early as Friday for some of us and going maybe into Monday or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hopefully everything works out. Yeah, we'll see. I'll continue to set my alarm. I was going to get up tomorrow morning with all the snow now. Uh, we'll see, but uh, minus 25 minus 33 with the, with the wind chills, what we're looking at here. Okay. So um, just to wrap up the 2022 RASC Observer Calendar Giveaway. Um, we've had uh, lots more entries, so that's great, but we're going to wrap it up. We're going to be taking entries until Tuesday, no like particular time, but uh, we definitely need to, to get this wrapped up the first half of the week so that we can uh, make the announcement next week and then uh, so that we can make sure that we, we get them in the mail and have at least uh, a, a hope and chance that uh, people will receive them before they, uh, before the new year. And if, if not, they'll be arriving maybe as late as the only the first or second week of the new year. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks Shane. And thanks everybody else for listening. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.